Welcome to Time Travelling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Trisha. And I'm Patty. This week we will be joining our TARDIS crew as they battle against the Mind Robber. We will be discussing the Doctor, the companions and the villains and then give your thoughts on the story as a whole. We would also love to hear your thoughts on this story. So to join the discussion, you can check us out at Time Team, that's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Or you can email us at timetravellingteam at teamproductions.com. Now, as per usual, Paddington, I will hand over to you for the story recap. Thank you. Episode 1. Zoe comments on the beauty of the volcanic eruption via the view screen, but her appreciation of the scene is interrupted by the doctor saying that there is something wrong with the fluid link again. Suddenly, mercury vapour starts to fill the console room, and the doctor says it has overheated and needs to cool down. He then joins Zoe in admiring the lava approaching them, reassuring Jamie that they are safe in the TARDIS. When the young Highlander asks if the ship has ever been buried in lava before, the Doctor uncertainly goes back to the console and tries to get it working again. He manages to stop the fluid link from overheating again, but he says he cannot take off. When pressed by his young companions, he admits that there is an emergency unit, but it is very dangerous as it moves the TARDIS out of time and space and into another dimension. He reluctantly activates it, and after a few tense moments of turbulence, the ship comes to a halt, but Zoe says that none of the instruments seem to be working. The Doctor says that they are currently nowhere, and he goes to try and repair the fluid link regulator. Zoe and Jamie go to get a change of clothes, and Zoe then speaks to the Doctor about their situation. She is eager to go outside and explore, but the Doctor says it is too dangerous as they have no way of knowing what is outside in the unexplored regions outside of space and time, and he insists that they stay inside. Meanwhile, Jamie is staring at the external view screen, which shows him the images of the Highlands of Scotland, which he excitedly points out to a recently arrived Zoe. However, she can see nothing on the screen, and Jamie goes to make sure that the TARDIS warning system is working. As he is doing this, Zoe looks at the screen and sees images of her own home city. The duo argue over as to what they saw, and Zoe is eager to go outside. Jamie goes to fetch the doctor first, but after he goes, Zoe is again shown images of the city, and opens the door so she can go outside. However, once outside, she seemingly vanishes into thin air. After recounting what they saw, Jamie and the doctor rush back to the console room, and the doctor is horrified to see the doors open. He tells Jamie that something is trying to lure them outside, but he gets distracted by an alarm going off on the console, which indicates that the TARDIS defence mechanisms will move the ship back to normal space and time. Jamie then rushes outside to look for Zoe, but he too vanishes into thin air. The Doctor then gets mentally assailed by an unknown figure, but he manages to fight off the attack. In their strange new surroundings, Jamie manages to find Zoe, and they try coming up with a plan of escape. They then start to call out for the Doctor, but unfortunately, he thinks their voices are part of the mental assault, and so he ignores them. They move around and both comment on how they feel they are being watched and this proves to be true as two large robots are observing them but neither Jamie or Zoe can see them. Suddenly, faint images of Zoe's city start to materialise in front of them but Jamie restrains her to stop her from running off after them. However, he is then shown images of his homeland and only comes out of his trance when Zoe slaps him. They decide to try and find the TARDIS but are stopped by the large white blocky robots who show themselves along with two others of their kind. Zoe then screams in terror when she sees two ghostly doppelgangers of her and Jamie beckoning them towards them. The Doctor is mentally observing this and calls out for them to resist it, but it is to no avail. Suddenly, the voice of the Force assaulting him urges him to go out after his young friends to try and rescue them. The Doctor keeps up his resistance as the voice tells him that he will eventually give in. This proves true when the Doctor sees more images of the duo being tormented and he rushes out to try and find them. He keeps sending them mental summons to try and get them safely back into the TARDIS and he eventually manages to do so, despite interference from the robots. Once safely inside the TARDIS, the Doctor starts to take off and explains to an apologetic Zoe that it wasn't her fault as he felt the temptation to go outside as well. 
He then notices a power drain being registered on the console, and both he and Zoe try to fix it. Neither of them notice Jamie falling asleep, where he immediately has a nightmare that causes him to wake up in a state of distress. He says he was being attacked by a unicorn, but Zoe stops his recounting of the dream when she notices the doctor concentrating on something. He suddenly says that something is mentally assaulting him again, and he urges them to focus on something to try and prevent being ensnared by the phantom power. It is no good though, as they all collapse and the TARDIS is blown apart. Jamie and Zoe cling to the console as it drifts into the nothingness of unknown space, and Zoe screams in terror as the Doctor drifts off away from them. Episode 2 Jamie finds himself separated from Zoe in a strange maze of obsidian columns. He hears Zoe calling out for him, and when he tries to move towards her voice, he comes across a British redcoat. He tries to sneak up on the unwary soldier, but his battle cry alerts his target at the last moment, who fires his weapon into his face. The gun, however, turns Jamie into a cardboard cutout of himself. Meanwhile, Zoe tries to find Jamie and she ends up at a vine-covered castle. The main door slowly opens and she goes in to investigate the inside hallway but falls into a pit. These events are being monitored by an unseen entity who reacts with glee at the fate of the two travellers but he soon grows frustrated when there is no sign of the Doctor on any of his screens. He decides that this could make for better sport when the Doctor sees what has become of his companions and the unseen entity orders him to be found. In the obsidian maze, the Doctor wakes up and calls out for his friends. He hears their voices and he tries to find them, but they are calling from two different directions and he tells them he will try to locate them one at a time. He first starts to look for Jamie, but he goes into hiding when a squad of large toy soldier robots come marching down the corridor looking for him. He comes out of hiding after they pass and quietly calls out for Jamie. Suddenly, a man wearing late 17th century style clothing and carrying a flintlock pistol approaches the doctor, speaking in a strange language. The doctor tries to communicate with him in French, but soon learns that his assailant speaks English and he thinks the doctor is a highwayman. He says that he was a sailor but the rest of his crew are lost and the doctor tells him that he is in a similar situation and convinces him to put the gun away. Unfortunately, he turns down the doctor's request for aid saying that his master has forbidden him to help and then he moves away again. The doctor tries to follow him but he disappears into the maze a few moments later. He starts to resume his search for the others but he is then surrounded by several children wearing late 19th century style clothing. They bombard him with riddles and word games, which he answers successfully. As a reward for guessing the final riddle correctly, they give him a dictionary before disappearing back into the maze. He then hears Jamie's voice again, and he goes searching before eventually finding the cardboard cutout of Jamie, which he assumes is another trick. He then spots a safe and a wishing well nearby, which he throws the dictionary into. Suddenly he hears sinister laughter, and he is then shown various images of a mist with the letters M and T crossed out as well as an image of a hand with the letter H crossed out. The Doctor realises it is a message saying that Jamie is safe and well, but he notices that the face on the cardboard cutout has disappeared. A board containing cut-up pictures of faces appears, and the Doctor tries to match up the correct ones to make up Jamie's face. However, he gets it wrong, and Jamie is reanimated with a completely different face. He tests Jamie to make sure that he is the real thing, which he successfully does so, but Jamie reveals the fate of the TARDIS to the startled Doctor. They then hear Zoe's voice and they rush off to find her, coming across the castle, but they find the door has been transformed into a painted backdrop. The doctor realises this is another riddle, asking when it is a door, not a door, answering when it is a jar. The illusion of the door disappears and they see Zoe trapped inside a giant jam jar. They free her and after giving a brief explanation as to what happened to Jamie, they decide to try and find a way out. They make their way through the maze, but they have no idea where they are, so Jamie climbs a tree to get a better look at their surroundings. He calls on that the obsidian trees are actually giant letters which spell out proverbs. Jamie also says that he can see an exit in the distance 
and he starts to lead them towards it when they encounter the stranger from earlier. He tries to dissuade them from trying to escape and denies having any knowledge of the toy soldiers roaming the maze. They hear the robots coming and go in, into hiding with the stranger offering to stand guard. However, he gives away the travellers' positions when he says he cannot see the robots. He then departs again as the trio are led away by the robots. A while into their march, the robots disappear and the travellers hear the sound of approaching hoofbeats. A unicorn, much like the one that Jamie was dreaming of, appears and starts to charge at them. Jamie and Zoe are eager to get out of the way, but the doctor holds both their hands and urges them to stand against this new threat. Episode 3 The doctor urges his two terrified friends to deny the existence of the unicorn, and right before it reaches them, it turns into a cardboard cutout. The doctor says that whoever is putting them through these tests is a being with incredible powers. Unbeknownst to the group, their captor repays the compliment and orders the soldiers to stop pursuing them so they can continue to test themselves against his traps. The travellers move to a new area that is overgrown with vines and cobwebs, and at the end of which they spot a ramshackle cottage guarded by the same red coat from earlier. Jamie attacks him to gain revenge, but he is once again transformed into the faceless cardboard cutout. The doctor reveals to Zoe that he has been through the process before, but he insists that he was rushed the first time. He is much more successful the second time around, and Jamie's returned to normal. After a brief celebration, the trio enter the house and discover a candlelit courtyard with five tunnels leading away from it. The doctor spots a ball of twine, and after getting Jamie to tie it to the door, the trio press on when they realise that the door is locked, and the only way they can get out is to go forwards. As they move on, Zoe starts to notice a pattern to the maze they find themselves in, just as Jamie announces that the twine has reached its end. The doctor presses on ahead with Zoe, and they eventually reach the heart of the maze, with the doctor being disappointed to find no one waiting for them. However, they start to think that they may not be alone when they see a skeleton on the ground near them, and suddenly hear distant bellowing of some creature. Zoe then recalls the classical tale of the Minotaur. The doctor says that they should be safe so long as they realise the Minotaur is not real, but he doesn't sound confident when the creature's shadow appears on the wall near them. Again, they manage to repel the creature with their disbelief as to its existence, and they then make their way back to Jamie. Back at the Twine's endpoint, Jamie encounters one of the mechanical soldiers and notices the light fixture on their helmets, which he deduces is a camera that allows their captor to see them. He manages to obscure its vision with his jacket and takes cover as it struggles to free itself. The captor urges the robot to hurry and after it moves the jacket, the soldier heads off down one of the tunnels looking for Jamie. The doctor and Zoe return and notice the discarded jacket on the floor, leading Zoe to start calling out for Jamie. Suddenly, the stranger returns and says that he hasn't encountered Jamie. The doctor asks if the stranger has ever seen his master and he replies that he has seen him on a few occasions but he resides in a fortified location. Suddenly the doctor asks if the stranger comes from Nottingham and the stranger confirms this, reciting a brief history of his life that the doctor is somehow able to recite as well. He then announces that he knows who the stranger is and he greets him as Lemuel Gulliver. After a brief friendly chat, Gulliver again departs and the doctor confirms for Zoe that somehow they have landed in the land of fiction. Zoe asks why they are being kept here and the doctor says he will need more time to figure that out and so they resume their search for Jamie. The young Highlander is being pursued by the mechanical soldier and they exit the maze which is at the base of a cliff. Jamie starts to climb up to avoid his pursuer and he eventually reaches a ledge but discovers that the rest of the cliff face is too sheer to climb. He says that the only way up would be if he had some rope and suddenly a length of rope is thrown down from the cliff top. He starts to climb and he eventually reaches the end of the rope which is coming out of a window. He is then greeted by the rope's owner, the legendary Rapunzel, leading Jamie to realise that the rope is actually her hair. He begs her to let him in, and she reluctantly does so, telling him that he needs to be very quiet. 
Once he climbs down through the window, he discovers that Rapunzel has disappeared and that he has arrived in a futuristically designed room with a large monitor in one corner. He spots a nearby wall with indicator lights, each of which is labelled with different fictional characters. Suddenly, a stock ticker near the wall starts to type out the description of what the Doctor and Zoe are doing at that current point in time. It informs him that they have returned to the cave to look for him, but warns that there is another danger waiting for them. In the cave, the Doctor and Zoe come across a Grecian-looking statue. He warns Zoe that they will need to be careful as the statue starts to come to life and they see that it is actually Medusa. They look away to avoid being turned into stone and the Doctor says that they will need to deny its existence like they did with the others, but Zoe struggles to do so as Medusa reaches out to grab her. Episode 4 The Doctor continues to urge Zoe to deny the Medusa is real, but she finds it difficult to concentrate as the fabled creature starts to paw at her face in an effort to force open her eyes. Jamie, meanwhile, continues to read the stock ticker, which informs him that the Doctor picked up a sword to kill the creature. As before, the first half of the story proves to be true when the Doctor picks up a sword that has just appeared at his feet. However, he questions his ability to kill something that doesn't exist and instead takes inspiration from Perseus, the mythical hero that killed Medusa. He reaches into his pocket and pulls out a hand mirror that allows him and Zoe to look at Medusa in the reflection without being turned into stone. He then uses the mirror to show Medusa her own reflection, which turns her back into a statue. At the stock ticker, Jamie sees a message saying that the test for the Doctor has failed and then he then goes to continue his exploration of his surroundings. However, an alarm is sounded and a voice orders that he is to be found. Jamie goes into hiding when he hears footsteps approaching, which turn out to be Gulliver's. He informs Jamie that he met the others, but before they can discuss anything further, Jamie hears the sound of approaching robots. He goes into hiding into a nearby alcove and Gulliver vows to protect him, but once again he cannot see the robots as they move past him to look at the stock ticker. Jamie emerges from his hiding spot and tries to leave again, but Gulliver informs him that it is impossible. Outside, the Doctor and Zoe approach the castle, but take cover when a shot is fired at them and destroys a nearby boulder. A muscle-bound, cape-wearing masked figure suddenly appears, and Zoe recognises him as a being called the Carcass. The Doctor manages to make his weapon disappear due to its scientific impossibility, but she cannot do the same to the Carcass as he doesn't recognise him from any source of fiction. Zoe warns the Doctor to be careful, citing the carcass's super strength, but she ends up coming to the rescue by using her judo skills to incapacitate him. The carcass surrenders and offers himself to, as a servant to Zoe for defeating him, and she instructs him to take them to the castle. As they follow on after him, Zoe explains that he is a comic strip character from her time. They manage to make their way to the entrance of the castle, where they dismiss the carcass. However, when they try to get in, they are asked what character they are, and the doctor does an impression of the carcass, whilst obscuring Zoe with a cloak that he took from the comic book character. They are then allowed inside and after a while they find Jamie, still trying to convince Gulliver of the robot's existence. The Doctor says he will try to confront their captor, but Gulliver tries to dissuade him from that course of action and instead urges the Doctor to try and make peace with his master. The Doctor promises to think about it and once Gulliver leaves, the Doctor confirms that he intends to go ahead with his original plan. Jamie then shows them the stock ticker, and the Doctor says that it seems that their captor is trying to trick them into becoming works of fiction by making them perform the acts he is writing about them doing. Zoe says that they need to get out of there and rushes for the entrance, accidentally tripping the alarm that Jamie warned them about when they first arrived. The Doctor says their best chance of freedom is to allow themselves to be caught so they can meet their captor. The robots again appear and force them back into a new opening in the wall, where the voice of their captor welcomes them. Inside a strange control room, with a large rotating pulsing orb in the centre, the travellers are enthusiastically greeted by a man wearing mid-century style clothing and wires attached to his head. He congratulates them on passing their tests and the doctor demands to know what the purpose of the tests were. 
He tells them that he was brought here from his original time in 1926, where he was a writer who wrote for a boys' adventure magazine. As a result of this, he was brought to the realm of fiction so his imagination could power the realm. The Doctor comments that this makes him little more than a prisoner, which makes the orb pulse and beep loudly. The man goes into a strange trance and begins to start writing. Jamie and Zoe say that they should use the opportunity to escape, but the Doctor says that he wants to stay to find out more, so he engages the man in conversation, thereby allowing them to slip away to find another way out. The man tells the Doctor that a human is needed to keep the realm alive as the entity that brought him here is incapable of sustaining the realm itself. The man then informs the Doctor that he has been selected to be his replacement as he is growing too old to fulfil his duties. The Doctor refuses and the entity then speaks through the man saying that his resistance is useless and that he must obey. The man then writes out a sentence saying that Jamie and Zoe were ambushed by the guards as they attempted to escape but he informs the Doctor that the only way to save them is for him to take over the writing. He is then shown a view screen where he sees Jamie and Zoe being forced into a large book which the robots then close. Episode 5 The man announces that Jamie and Zoe have been turned into fictional characters and if the Doctor takes over his role then he will have the ability to free them. The Doctor reluctantly refuses to give in to the man's demands and flees as the group of robots are sent in to apprehend him. The man says he cannot escape but relishes the thought of the chase to come. The Doctor ends up on a parapet of the castle and hides when he hears the door opening. Jamie and Zoe appear from the doorway, but the Doctor's elation at seeing them is short-lived when they appear to be stuck in some sort of loop, with Jamie repeatedly mentioning the destruction of the TARDIS. The Doctor notices a nearby skylight, and in the room below he spots a typewriter that appears to be transcribing the events to come. The Doctor says that if he can access it, then he may be able to save himself and the others. However, he cannot open the skylight, and laments that he would need the strength of the carcass to open it. Suddenly the carcass appears, and easily removes the frame of the skylight. The Doctor then asks for assistance to get down to the typewriter, and the carcass leaves but returns a few moments later with Rapunzel, who agrees to let him use her hair as a rope. He starts to write an ending, but realises that if he does so, then he will be trapped in the land of fiction, and so he climbs back up Rapunzel's hair. Once he gets back on the parapet, he discovers that Jamie and Zoe have disappeared, and greets the newly arrived Gulliver and the children from earlier, who start to badger him with questions. In the control room, the man writes a paragraph indicating that Jamie and Zoe realise that the Doctor is evil. They are brought in by a pair of the robots and echo the statements that the man wrote down and ask him how they can help him. Back on the parapet, the Doctor is despondent as he does know how to proceed, but the children point out the newly arrived TARDIS to him, and as he approaches it, Jamie and Zoe appear from within. They tell the Doctor that they will explain this restoration to him, but once he is inside, it is revealed to be a trap, as the facade of the TARDIS exterior falls away to reveal the Doctor encased in a large glass case that slowly fades away, taking him with it. In the control room, the man looks on satisfied as the glass case appears and he tells the Doctor that he has now been converted into a work of fiction and added to the Master Computer's mainframe. He then reveals that the Master Computer intends to convert the entire Earth into a realm of fiction so it can control it. The Doctor then realises that he can influence the Master Computer's abilities to manipulate events and he urges Jamie and Zoe to free themselves from the book. The man summons the robot guards to protect the Master Computer as he watches the young duo emerge from the book and appear on the parapet with the other characters. A squad of soldier robots are dispatched and Zoe asks Gulliver to help but he says that he cannot act against the will of his master. The Doctor summons the carcass to destroy the soldiers and a battle of wills begins when the man retaliates by writing that the carcass turns on Jamie and Zoe instead. The Doctor says that the carcass's weapon is drained of its power and so the man summons Serrano de Bergerac, the famous nasally deformed swordsman and poet. The Doctor counters this by summoning the legendary musketeer D'Artagnan 
and the two men engage in a sword fight. The doctor urges Jamie and Zoe to escape, and they use Rapunzel's hair to get away from the parapet. The man swaps out Serrano for Blackbeard, the infamous pirate, who gets the best of D'Artagnan, but the doctor swaps him out for Sir Lancelot, the legendary knight of the round table, who easily dispatches Blackbeard. The master computer orders the doctor to be killed, despite the man's pleas, as that would mean he would still be enslaved. The doctor realises that he will turn himself into a fictional character if he tries to save himself, and the robot sees him, not noticing a newly arrived Jamie and Zoe who tried to come up with a plan to destroy the master computer. Zoe says that she overheard the master computer say it cannot be allowed to be overloaded, and so she gets Jamie to help her overload it by pressing multiple command buttons and switches on its base plate. The doctor uses the distraction to rush forward and unhook the man from the wires. The master computer orders the robots to kill everyone, but their weapon blasts hit the master computer by accident when Jamie and Zoe duck for cover, thereby destroying it. The doctor urges Jamie to help him carry the man away with them, stating that he is just as much his victim as they were. Zoe asks about the others, and the doctor reminds her that they are fictional, and they are safe, unlike themselves. He informs the group that they now face two possibilities, that they will either be returned back to their own reality, or they will fade away from existence. Suddenly they all disappear, and the TARDIS reassembles itself in space. End of the story. Thank you very much. You're welcome. So, we have left a very, very strange place, and we'll go to a slightly less strange place now. So we're going to go over to the trivia spot with Trish. So what do you got for us this week? I'm not sure if you're calling me strange or the trivia spot, Trish. Neither one. Like, not sure I like it. <laughs> oh, bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, the mind robber. Air date for this serial was the 14th of September to the 12th of October, 1968. The writer for the story is Peter Ling. Now, this is Peter's only on-screen Doctor Who writing credit, though he did write the novelization for the story as well. Now, Peter was good friends with Derek Sherwin, who is the script editor at this point in time. And they're also friends with Terence Dix, who will later become a script editor. And they had worked together previously on a program called Crossroads. And Derek Sherwin reached out to Peter saying, hey, do you want to come write for Doctor Who? Peter felt a little bit like an imposter because he'd never done science fiction before. That wasn't really his shtick, you know? It wasn't really something he was used to. But Derek basically said, look, you know, forget the science fiction stuff. It's about children and imagination and just, you know, go with it. It's a children's program, you know? The TARDIS wiki has a quote from a letter that Derek sent to Peter dated July 15th, 1968, that reads... Leave the pure SF and monster bits to those with unoriginal minds. I shall still be around to discuss ideas with you if you feel you want to confer with an almost permanently stoned associate. Interesting, Derek. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, When Peter originally wrote the serial, Victoria's replacement hadn't really been decided upon because obviously they write the stories a bit in advance. So he wrote a generic female companion... And gave that companion the name of Zoe. The producer of the time liked the name. And that's how Zoe got her name. Interesting. Hmm. Peter passed away in 2006. The director for the story is David Maloney. This is the first of nine stories for David. We'll see his work again in The Crotons. The War Games. A little bit of Frontier in Space. Planet of the Daleks. Genesis of the Daleks. 
Planet of Evil, The Deadly Assassin, and The Talons of Wang Chien. That is a very impressive considerable resume. set of stories to be part of. Yeah, no, that that's a very impressive resume. Yeah, it has some of my favorite stories on it, which is great. <laughs> <laughs> David also sadly passed away in 2006. This story was originally meant to be four episodes. And they were budgeted for four episodes. However, when The Dominators was cut to five episodes instead of six, because that story didn't really stretch to six episodes, the mind robber had to be up to five episodes in order for the total episode balance for the season to sort of balance out. This caused a couple of problems. Uh, A, there was no money in the budget for a fifth episode. So the production team, largely led by Derek Sherwin himself, ended up writing an episode based around the fact that they had no budget. So (laughs) Peter didn't write episode one. That was Derek, largely Derek and some of the production staff who did episode one. So that's why in episode one, there is minimal sets and no guest actors. They had no fucking money. So that was all they could do. Patrick Troughton apparently wasn't very happy with this. According to Fraser Hines, he demanded that he, Fraser, and Wendy, pa- Wendy Padbury be paid more as they were expected to deliver more in a single episode just by themselves. And, you know, the show wasn't paying for guest actors, so they could be paid more. Which, in fairness, I kind of understand where he's coming from. You know, his rationale was that they were working day in, day out, and now they were expecting to carry an entire episode, just the three of them. Mm-hmm. They should be paid more. As mentioned, that money wasn't there. (laughs) So, again, according to Fraser on the DVD, that's why these episodes are shorter than normal. So usually episodes are around the 23 to 24 and a half minute mark. Yeah. Give or take. These are closer to 18 to 20 minutes. And apparently the whole idea of Patrick not wanting everyone to be overworked is part of the reason why. There seems to be some conflicting information about Peter Ling's thoughts on the production team cobbling together in episode one mm. and then sticking his four episodes onto the arse end of it. The TARDIS fandom wiki says he was unhappy about it. I don't know what their source is for that because in the DVD making of documentary, he himself said that he was happy he didn't have to do part one because he didn't want to have to worry about the setup and you know picking up from the last story and how they he just wanted to jump right into the action of his story yeah. so he actually quite liked the fact that someone else wrote that part for him <laughs> um so i don't know where this information is coming from maybe there was maybe that's just something he said for the dvd and in reality he's documented saying something else elsewhere yeah it wouldn't be the first time that someone has lied while they're on dvd um as mentioned in the episode the character of gulliver only speaks lines that were written by Jonathan Swift, which I think is a fantastic framing device to include in the story. However, if, like me, you watch things with the subtitles on, you knew who he was within the first five seconds. Mm. Because when he's speaking whatever language he's speaking when the doctor meets him, the subtitles tell you he's speaking Lilliputian. Uh, and okay. also, and I'm going to get this wrong, Brobdingnagian? Brobdingnagian. So if you're a fan of the book or if you've ever seen a version of Gulliver's Travels, 
you see someone dressed like that speaking Lilliputian, I literally was like, okay, that's Gulliver. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> Bit of a giveaway. Just a tad. I almost wish they didn't specify who was speaking Lilliputian, although I suppose from, like, even that Lilliputian came from the book. Yeah. So, yeah. Bit of a bit of a boo on my side for that. Patrick Troughton and Wendy Padbury both named this as their favourite cereal. They really thoroughly enjoyed it. However, on the DVD, Wendy says that she wasn't exactly happy with the Zoe carcass fight. Because she didn't have a stunt double, so she did it all herself. Mm-hmm. And as was usual at the time, it was shot on video. There was no possibility of editing or retakes. She had like one day training with a stunt performer. And she literally got one take. At the end, she kind of flubs her line because she's obviously out of breath from having to do the stunt. And she asked them if they could go again and they basically said no. And so she's really unhappy with how that turned out. What she did say, though, is that Zoe's new outfit, her sparkly catsuit, was actually great for that because it was really comfortable. <laughs> so when she was doing the fight scene, at least she was comfy. And actually, the gentleman who plays the carcass has a specific memory of practicing that fight scene. Because while on the show, she's wearing the cat suit, in rehearsals, Wendy Padbury was wearing a skirt. And so when he lands on his back, apparently he got a very nice view mm. of her. And he, he specifies this. Underwear covered bottom. <laughs> that has stuck with him to this day. That's the quite the, the most polite yet pervy thing I've ever heard in my life. Oh yeah, like he, he went down, he's like, Oh yo, I got to see her bottom. Oh she she was wearing underwear, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> like he sort of made a point of specifying. Which I loved. Oh. Because he was sort of like because obviously the DVD was recorded yeah. in sometime in the two thousands, so he obviously didn't want to like Publicly shame this woman. Yeah. Um, so he sort of covered it up. Oh, but it's like the Patrick Stewart thing from Extras, but, but it's too late. I've seen everything. <laughs> or um, Patrick Stewart tells a story of when they were doing Chain of Command, mm-hmm. part one, I imagine. They're, I can't remember if it's when they're practicing or when they're on the actual mission. But there's a bit where like Beverly is crawling through a cave and the cave starts collapsing down on top of her and Picard has to reach in and grab her. And Patrick just reached in and grabbed her by the boobs. By accident. <laughs> oh. Anyway, back to Doctor Who. <laughs> David Maloney, our director, recalled that he was assured that... So the unicorn, spoiler warning, is not a real unicorn, right? They don't <gasps> exist. I know, I know, it's terrible. But they're, but they're so fluffy. Yeah. Fluffy. <laughs> yeah. I was like, what are you out of it? It was a pony that had a horn mm-hmm. attached to its head. And he was told it will be a white pony because unicorns are white. It was a brown pony. They had to use all of the makeup artist's white makeup. That wasn't enough. So they had to go to an RAF barracks and get like some white chalk or something. Oh, not the not the, the 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 lime chalk that they use to fucking grid out stuff, is it? I don't know. He said they had to go to the RAF barracks <sighs> and get more supplies from them. I'm assuming the RAF barracks didn't have white makeup, so whatever white compound they would have in order to effectively 
paint the horse white. Hmm. Thankfully, this story is in black and white, so it looks fine. <laughs> I imagine if this story was in colour, it'd probably look <laughs> shit. Oh, that reminds me of the thing from The Simpsons. Like, you know, cows don't look like cows on a uh, on film screen, so they have to basically paint horses to look like cows. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jamie's face. Mm. I was very interested because i had never seen this story before yeah so i was very interested because i i knew the whole thing about like at one point in time another actor played jamie and they were hoping nobody would notice and that's the way it's kind of spun to the audience like it's spun like nowadays in sort of doctor who lore Mm. that's not it at all though (laughs) like so what happened was fraser turned up on set when they were prepping episode two Mm -hmm. and he started scratching and Got sent to the doctor and he had chicken pox. So he was hoisted off the set and sent the fuck home. And so they had to find a reason why he wasn't in the episode. And given the nature of the story, they came up with the idea of changing his face as part of the story. Hmm. So the bits of him getting shot and being turned into the sort of statue or the like cardboard cutout. Yeah. Those were filmed later, obviously, when he came back. But that's where the idea came from. That makes way more sense. I thought they literally just recast him for one episode. And, like, that... Because that's the way it's sort of in the public consciousness. What's not actually what happened in the story at all. <laughs> yeah, no, you can kind of... Like, I remember before telling a joke to someone, like, that you could tell that Drake Fraser Hines didn't have Irish parents. Because, like, <laughs> like when I was younger... Uh, where I was from if someone got the chicken fox you were sent to play with them and then it, that was it then like you know it was just I wasn't yeah but, but, but see then again like I thought like as growing up I thought it was very normal for you to be sent out to get exposed to chicken fox so that you wouldn't get them anymore in adult life because I know that in adult life they can be a lot worse mm-hmm. but then I I suppose I moved up <laughs> to the big city and I found out oh wait the, not everything is done the way where I was from <laughs> although in fairness most people even in the big city right um did do that when we were growing up it's just by the time someone of my age had chicken pox i think that idea was changing and so when i went to this girl's house with her little sister had them i went to her house for a birthday party and i was sent home because i'd never had the chicken pox as far as i could remember and to this day i'm now 33 i have never had the chicken pox to my knowledge, bear in mind, I have asked my mum to clarify. And she's convinced I've never had them. But she also raised five children. So it's entirely possible yeah. that she just forgot. <laughs> like when I was teaching, I wasn't allowed to teach at one point. Because we had a chicken pox outbreak in the school. And because I was an adult and chicken pox, like if you get shingles, which yeah. is the adult version of chicken pox, um, it can be, like it can mm. be very dangerous for you. I was sent home and I wasn't allowed to come back until the chicken box was gone. I think I remember that. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't allowed to teach because there was an outbreak of chicken box. I remember, like, this is again a segue now, we're focusing very much on chicken box, but uh, the very first rugby game I ever went to was a Heineken Cup quarter final, or I think it was a quarter semi final between Wasps and Munster. And one of the best uh, Munster players was David Wallace. Uh, David Wallace. Uh, wasn't low play because he had chicken pox at the age of like 31 
and like, this is way this is like nearly 18 years ago and I remember I was at a bar with my cousins and they were fucking raging kind of going what sort of fucking parents did he have that they didn't expose him to chicken pox fuck's sake and <laughs> as a result of that I suppose you could say Munster lost the match <laughs> well apparently the source of the chicken pox for Fraser was his mm-hmm. niece and nephew who were uh, over it or something so this probably leads us on to the cast yes. so as replacement Jamie McCrimmon we have Hamish Wilson uh, this is Hamish's only Doctor Who acting credit, which is a shame because he's actually quite good. Mm-hmm. Um, his non-Who credits include Greyfriars, Bobby, The Story of a Dog, The Vital Spark, Softly Softly, Taggart, Monarch of the Glen, and Still Game. Hamish sadly passed away in March of 2020 after contracting COVID-19, which in current times as we're recording this is still here and it sucks. Uh, yes, it is. The Stranger, later to be known as Mr. Gulliver, uh, is played by Bernard Horsfall. This is the first of four appearances for Bernard. We'll see him again in The War Games, Planet of the Daleks, and The Deadly Assassin. Hmm. Who were the director of The War Games, Planet of the Daleks, <laughs> and The Deadly Assassin? Weird that those two things should correlate. His non-who credits include The Avengers, Ivanhoe, Jack and Nori, The Jewel in the Crown, Casualty, and Braveheart. Bernard passed away in 2013. Princess Rapunzel is played by Christine... Piri, I think is how you pronounce it. P-I-R-I-E. Uh, she also did the voiceover for, you know, there's at one point there's a voiceover reading of Little Women mm-hmm. while Jamie is in the sort of high-tech control room by himself. Yeah. She did that voiceover as well, though ah. she doesn't get credit on screen for that. And this appears to be her only acting role ever. Literally on IMDb, there's nothing else listed for her. There's no other information other than she was in this episode of Doctor Who. And that's it. Oh. Carcass, or The Carcass, is played by Christopher Robbie. This is the first of two Doctor Who credits for him. We'll see him again in Revenge of the Cybermen. His non-Who credits include Enemies Closer, Holby City, Van Wilder 2, The Rise of Taj, <laughs> London's Burning, Wolf Said, The Legend of Robin Hood, UFO, Codename, and again, The Avengers. Lastly, as the master of the land, or the man, as Paddy <laughs> described him in his summary... <laughs> we have emrys jones this is the only doctor who acting credit for emrys his non-who credits include one of our aircraft is missing holiday camp the men from room 13 no hiding place ghost squad out of the unknown dixon of doc green doom watch and zed cars emrys passed away in 1972 so that was the weird. Uh, I said strange. Spot. I said strange, not weird. <laughs> the strange trivia spot mm-hmm. with the strange Trisha. And now we're on to the core part of our podcast, which is our character discussion. So we have the doctor, the companions. We do have one prominent character this time around. Mm-hmm. And then we have the villains. Mm-hmm. So. Doctor first, as per usual. As per Ouge. As per Ouge. <laughs> <laughs> as per Ouge. <laughs> yes, as per Ouge well. So, what are your thoughts? You're not having the best time of things with Jamie lately, are you, Doctor? <laughs> 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 like, what was it? You, first of all, you're like, you're a fucking prick to him with the web, in the, not the web of fear. Uh, although you were a prick at the end of that. Uh, you're pricking the wheel in space. You're a bit, of an ass hat in the Dominators. Now 
who the person who you came to be like probably your closest friend at this point in time you can't even recognize his face okay so one thing and this is minorly in the doctor's defense right it's one of those things you pick the eyes pick the nose and pick the mouth however he was so arrogant and cocky that he knew exactly what it was as opposed to okay picking the eyes and then checking if the nose matches and then pausing and checking each of them he just threw up the first three that his hands touched. Yeah. <laughs> no, but he I w- could have been a lot better had he taken his fucking time. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I get like You're just having the best time with Jamie, are you? Uh, or had Zoe with him. Because Zoe, Zoe helped him the second time. Yes. Like, he reached for one and she kind of looked at him going, <laughs> when he wasn't no. being When he wasn't being rushed. <laughs> you yeah. just hear someone going, bullshit, bullshit. <laughs> um... So I was watching this and I was like going, is this the most childish the Doctor has ever been? But I'm also kind of wondering, is that does that come down to like uh, Patrick Trouton's facial expressions at points in time? Because like, it, like I can see why he would consider this to be one of his favourite his favorite performance because I think he is a ball here. Well, he's clearly like loving life. Yeah, I think he's having a, I think he was having a great time. Um, one thing that I did quite enjoy was his so the master kind of pointed out that you know you know the doctor has like you know he's a fantastic brain and like think of all the things he could accomplish with that brain and obviously with that brain comes like the knowledge of most fictional characters now like with the exception of the carcass that's a small bit too niche for him i suppose but although apparently this random boys magazine from like yeah. the 1900s is perfectly on, was it on the point en- with that i think he said the ensign or something like that yeah but um i like how in the battle of um, wills you know in terms of like you know the fictional characters he never like just you know goes like fucking domino like he doesn't go like bring Cthulhu into things or anything like that it's all <laughs> <Can you imagine? laughs> you know yeah it's just like you know outcomes... I send Blackbeard I send Cthulhu yeah <laughs> <laughs> they're both nautically teamed <laughs> Um, although like uh, yeah, it was just like, you know, like this, like, it's just ever so slightly escalating things and like, you know, to kind of keep it in reserve. Uh, also, like, you know, to be fair to him, he didn't fall for any of the traps, which I pretty, I'm pretty sure a lot of people would have fallen for, which is like, you know, I'll write my own rescue, at which point it's like, oh, shite, I'm, I'm a fictional character now. No. Um, but other than that, I did, I did enjoy seeing him pair up with Zoe a bit more because that was something that we didn't really unfortunately see with Victoria um, the two of them mm. teaming up a whole lot whereas we're seeing it a bit more or here ever. now or ever yes <laughs> um, so we're seeing it a bit more here now and I have thoughts on Zoe which we'll get into that because I, there are some parts of that team up that I really quite enjoyed but more so from the Zoe perspective than from the Doctor perspective uh, I think that's pretty much it for me on that front how about you? So you touched on several things that I really liked um, I did think it was great that like him struggling not to solve the issue with the story by self-inserting himself because mm-hmm. it nearly happens two or three times and like he's just he's just in the moment and you know i didn't even think of it watching the episode until he mentioned it the first time he's like oh and then the doc he's like no i can't write my name down i mm. i can't write my name because if i do yeah. i'll become a fictional character which i kind of don't under like it's great that he did it, but then he was like they were telling his story on the little ticker tape thing the whole time. Yeah. So that 
logic kind of falls through a small bit. Doesn't really apply. But there's a lot of logic in the story that doesn't quite make sense. Well, maybe they're spelling the doctor with like a, a, a lowercase t, you know, because... Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. I think his performance was fantastic. This is a great outing by Patrick. Like you said, he's clearly enjoying himself. I wouldn't say this was the doctor's most childish. I still think that was the wheel in space um, where he had his feckin' tantrum. But I think it's probably Patrick's most childish. Mm. And Patrick enjoying himself the most Mm. is probably why he likes the story so much. A few things around him pairing up with Zoe. So I also liked seeing it. I think it was great. However... Stop putting Zoe down just because she has an analytical mind, you ass. Mm-hmm. Like, she's there going, like, like, oh, where do we go next? And she's like, right. And he's like, how do you know? And she explained that she's worked out the pattern of how the maze works. And he makes a comment about, like, not everything's analytical or something. And it's like, yeah. do you hate her being right that much? And, like, later on, I'll get to Medusa a bit when, when we're talking about Zoe. But with the carcass, I <laughs> I could go super deep on the interaction with the carcass and with Medusa in some respects hmm. when it comes to the trust between Zoe and the Doctor. Right. So the Doctor has no clue who the carcass is. Never heard of him. It is not filtering his brain. He knows his gun is bollocks. Yeah. Because Zoe described him. That's, like, that's not a real thing. And the gun disappears. But he can't get the carcass to disappear because he doesn't know that the carcass is fictional because he's never heard of him. Zoe is standing right next to you telling you the carcass is fictional. That's all you need to know. You don't need to have experienced this fiction yourself. You just need to have someone you trust tell you it's not real and he'll go away. And I'm like, all you had to do was believe her. Hmm. And you didn't believe her because you never experienced it yourself. And it's sort of this very subtle thing that sort of hints at his arrogance. Yeah. If I've never heard of it, then it can't possibly be fiction. Mm-hmm. You know, I've never read this comic strip or I've never heard of this or I've never heard of that. And I'm like, you don't know everything. <laughs> Do you know? I, just, I don't know. It, it sort of, it kind of bothered me because it's like, he didn't trust her. See, like that's no, that's the super in-depth thing that I probably wouldn't have. What I what I thought of it was just a sort of um, ah, so you're you know you're fucking fallible, you know, <laughs> just that that type of thing. Which I do, which I love. I don't think we got to see a whole lot of it with Doc Bill. I think we see it more here now, I, I, especially at the end of the the last episode, where it's like the Doctor's so cocky and self-assured, and all of a sudden someone just kind of points out something, and he's like, oh. Well, yes, whatever, you know. Like, with the whole thing, oh, don't worry, we're perfectly safe, you know. Yes, but we're on the fucking island with the lava. Um, So I didn't, I didn't, I viewed it more as just him being kind of like, you're you're not as clever as you think you are, as opposed to the trust issue, which, but I'm, I'm not denying that that's like a thing, because I suppose the more you think about it, it's like, yeah, why, didn't, why don't you pay attention to what she's saying? Yeah. And we're going to get to Zoe in a minute, and Zoe has a similar thing, mm-hmm. but Zoe's can be explained away a bit better. Yeah. The reason why I struggle with the doctor is that he knows the gun is bollocks. Yeah. Therefore, the person holding the gun should be should be should bollocks. also be bollocks. 
Yeah. <laughs> you know. <It's>, um, <laughs> but overall, I mean, Patrick clearly was loving loving life. I think the doctor was great. I the thing with Jamie was just hilarious because his totally his arrogance coming back to bite him in the ass. Yeah. And, you know, I love Zoe's reaction when she's like, "You've done this before." <laughs> And you got it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was, I was under pressure, you know. Leave me alone. But given how much time he spends with Jamie and how obsessed yeah. he is with always being with Jamie, you're like, really? Yeah. Really? <laughs> I love if Jamie like was like, you cognizant of what was going on. At which point he was like, you lying bastard. <laughs> <laughs> you totally know that, that Zoe told him later. Yeah. <laughs> he was like... I doctor, what's this about you not knowing what I look like? <laughs> <sighs> so, who is next on our list of people to talk about? So we have our companions. Coolio. Jamie or Zoe? Who do I want to go first? I'll go with Jamie first. Cool. I love that Jamie is just like a bull. He sees a red coat and he goes for it. Yeah, like it was going like a tip, like just a pro tip, you know. Like if you're trying to sneak up an enemy, don't call out your battle cry as you're just about to attack them. Poor Jamie. I know. The real villain of his piece is the doctor again. To be honest, other than running headlong into battle with any red coat he sees, even though he knows it's doomed to failure. Yeah, I think Jamie did quite well in the story. Yeah, he did. He did really like you know he was. I liked his little solo escapade into the castle by himself. Mm. I don't, I don't know why, but I just thought it was, just thought it was pretty cool. Yeah, the thing with Jamie and this is that he's completely out of his element, mm-hmm. in that he doesn't know who any of these people are, as in the fictional characters. He's no fucking clue who they are. No. He doesn't understand the technology, and yet he still manages to get to the source of the problem before everybody else. Yeah. Do you know, like, he still manages to find his way through and be useful, even though he hasn't a numpty's notion what's going on. Mm. Which is, like, quintessential Jamie. Yeah. Really. Do you know, like, a lot of other characters in that position would just be having to have their hand held the whole time and would just be a hindrance. Whereas Jamie just goes off and does his own fucking shit. And he's like, yeah, whatever. So kind of like Ian and Barbara to an extent, like, I think... You could throw Jamie into like a solo scenario by himself, and you're going to get a good story because mm. you know that as well, like that Jamie is going to be very investable. I suppose we kind of had that last week with the Dominators, where, was, where granted it was him and Cully, but for the main mm. TARDIS crew, it was him. Yeah, and again, like he doesn't like you know last week he didn't understand what the gun was going to do, but he still yeah. made use of it. Mm-hmm. He still, you know, was able to be himself and and get stuff done. I do want to give kudos to Hamish as well. Yes. It was super weird seeing someone else's Jamie. And like I said, I hadn't seen this story before. So I all I knew was sort of what was in like the public consciousness was that they randomly tried to replace Jamie for an episode and hope nobody noticed. Which again, like as you documented in your story recap and as I said in the trivia, isn't actually what happened in the episode at all. It makes perfect no. sense within the story why you have a different actor. I, I think it was done really well, to be honest. And like, and like, see, this is the thing now. Hamish did such a good job that it, his appearance as Jamie didn't take me out of the story at all. No, and like, one of the things, that, like, on the DVD that like Hamish said to himself, like, he had seen 
the Highlanders like he watched Doctor Who and he knew Jamie's yeah. character and he'd kind of said to himself as I imagine a lot of people did oh I could do that do you yeah. know <laughs> but like he studied really hard like he obviously like the turnaround on this was over like two days yeah and it was literally like here's your script be there tomorrow and he said that like he was up all night because he wanted to go in and be able to deliver the same performance with the same sort of comfortability and assurance for Wendy and Patrick mm-hmm. that they would have if it was Fraser. Yeah. And I think he did brilliantly. I think he's believable as Jamie. Mm-hmm. And I think he does really, really well. Yeah. I wonder, like, as I said, like his dedication really pays off because... Yeah, it's just it's a different face, but like, no, I'm completely, I'm completely hooked into it, you know. Because, mm. um, like, say, like, unlike some shows, you know, where like you know, uh, a character is replaced. No, granted, it's a more of a long running thing. Like, it's not really as short as a thing like this, but the different actor really takes you out of the the role of small, but you yeah. know, not quite, you know, fake Aunt Viv. From <laughs> other Aunt Viv, but um, so you're you're you're, you're, an, you're an OG Aunt Viv fan. I quite like OG Aunt Viv. That's okay. I, I, <laughs> yeah, she was she was much more fun. She had much more of a personality yeah. than, than New Aunt Viv. Uh, absolutely. No offense to the lady who played New Aunt no. Viv. I I couldn't see a second Aunt Viv like doing Proud Mary in a karaoke booth. Or um, what was the episode where like Carlton and Will got arrested? Oh, the, and yeah, with the, with the Uncle earrings. Phil has to keep yeah. holding her back because she keeps trying to attack them. That's Got so it. funny. You mean, the, you mean the shredder? Because Uncle Phil's shredder voice really comes out. <laughs> it really does. Uh, oh, I know. We've, we've gone off on another tangent yeah. again about another TV program. Yes, we have. <laughs> so Jamie could do with some subtlety, but mm-hmm. all round, good egg. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it's like the George of the Jungle thing you know, all around good guy <laughs> Jamie McCriven <laughs> uh, so how about his not quite partner in crime but his counterpart yeah so <laughs> while Wendy said that the cat suit was super comfy it isn't really stealthy is it no it's like you're a walking fucking disco ball <laughs> yeah it's like <laughs> It's like a kind of the, the the type of thing that you'd see like at a um, kind of like a floor gymnastics routine or something like that, you know. Mm. Which, which you know, apparently it was based on yeah. you know, gymnastics workout outfit or whatever. Um, but you know, if you think about you know, TV shows where like the actress is wearing a cat suit, sparkly, like silver cat suit, not really the thing. You know, no. Seven of Nines was a little bit shiny. But like, but see, yeah. but the one thing is now is that like I as we were you know we've talked about it's a fucking bingo card show is the Avengers, mm. and I think I think it's around this time that um, Diana Rigg uh, mm. plays Emma Peel, and Emma Peel was known for wearing that that cat suit. Was hers sparkly? No, hers was like you know the sleek black number. You know, yeah. See, the sleek black number looks cool. Or yeah. like to Paul's ones from season two of Enterprise onwards season yeah. three of Enterprise onwards when she got rid of the first the first one was crap but the later ones were good sevens again one. later ones yeah were good this one is just like you know 
the small if you can't be you can't hide in this cat suit. No, you can't. The smallest bit of light and you light up like a fucking disco ball. <laughs> Although speaking of Emma Peel, I must say eat your heart out, Zoe breaking out the judo moves. I loved that. I think yeah. you know, while Wendy obviously wasn't a fan of it, as I mentioned in the trivia, I love the fact that we get to see Zoe who's like five foot nothing. Yeah. <laughs> She's tiny. Um kick some ass. But what I particularly love is that she kicked ass in a totally Zoe way. Yeah. Calling out each lesson that she was implementing <laughs> as she went. <laughs> it's like, lesson 17, lesson 42. <laughs> it's like, oh, Zoe. <laughs> they were all the same lesson as well, which is that, like, he's bigger than you, just flip him. Yeah. Just flip him. <laughs> That's all she was doing over and over again. <laughs> But yeah, I thought that was I thought that was brilliant. I thought the fact that like, you know, we've discussed Zoe's analytical mind, and you know, we see that in this because you know she figures out the path to the labyrinth or whatever. What I love is that it doesn't stop her from leveraging what's in her environment. Mm-hmm. So she knows the carcass isn't real. Yeah, the doctor doesn't believe her, but she knows the carcass isn't real. Mm. But he has committed himself to her. Yes. Like, well, while he's here, I might as well make use of him. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> which I love. <laughs> She's just like yeah. he's like, I am your servant. And she's like, cool. Get I, us up there. <laughs> I think Wendy Padbury, and again, it's because like you know she's the five feet of fury type thing. Is she has the perfect face for that sort of? Imagine a small child has like beaten the adult, and now the adult is the servant for the day. Just that sort of like you know, imagine like just her preening around the place. And I think Wendy Padbury is very good at that. That's basically your everyday life now, isn't it? Pretty much. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much. The other thing with the cat suit that I I just remembered there. So the DVD um, bonus features. This is actually really good. The the making of for the story is is exceptionally good if you haven't watched it. But um, they were talking about the scene where the TARDIS explodes. Mm -hmm. And then you've got the console spinning in space. And you've got Jamie and... Zoe on the TARDIS and you know Fraser has kind of said that like you know that is you know that's a you know for that point of time in Doctor Who that's crazy oh my god like the console is by itself it's not in the TARDIS and he's like no one cares yeah all anyone cares about is looking at Wendy's bum (laughs) that's literally the only thing people care about because she sprawled across it and the camera pans around her (laughs) He's like the only thing people remember is Wendy's bum. Something for the dads. <laughs> uh, he call uh, he calls her Patters, which I just patters. find funny. Yeah. Cool. You're not to call me that by the way. No, no, no. you're Patty. Um the one thing that I was a little bit disheartened about with Zoe, and I want to get your feeling on this, is the whole thing with Medusa. Right. So I said that her and the doctor have the same thing where they both know. So Zoe told the doctor that the carcass isn't real and the doctor didn't believe her or didn't believe her enough to make the carcass disappear. Mm-hmm. The doctor says Medusa isn't, isn't really there. Zoe knows the Medusa isn't there. Like most of her knows this, but fear is taking over. Right? Yeah. Which is why I kind of excuse it a little bit more because she knows what Medusa is and what Medusa can do. Whereas the doctor had never heard of the carcass, like, do you know what I mean? Yeah. So she knows what Medusa is, and it's actually touching her, and her mind is playing tricks on her, 
being like, oh, it feels like ice. And he's like, no, it's it's stone. It's not real. That part was kind of creepy with um, just like the weird pawing of because like, you, you don't see the full Medusa do it. You just see the hands appear off yeah. screen and pat at the face. I, okay, my thoughts, or sorry, did you have something else to say? Yeah, so I was just, just going to finish off. My thought on that though, the reason why it bothers me is because I excuse it a little bit because the thing is touching her fucking face and she's familiar from mythology of what it is and what a Medusa can do. My issue is they literally just face the Minotaur. Yeah. Which comes from the same mythology. (laughs) (laughs) So if they were able to get the Minotaur to disappear, that's where I, that's where my defense of Zoe in this in comparison to the Doctor and the Carcass kind of falls down because Mm. she had literally just faced this exact same test with the Minotaur, which comes from Greek mythology. And she battled it. Like she conquered it. And then the Medusa, which also comes from Greek mythology, she failed. Now, couple of differences between the Minotaur and the Medusa aspect of things, right? Is, I suppose, with the Minotaur, like, when you see it, you you can see it. And mm. you can banish it from back whence it came. With Medusa, it's slightly different, because to see it is to face your own end. And even... Now, with Zoe... Zoe, I think, is in a worse scenario here than the Doctor is. Because Zoe is a highly logical character. Mm. Who has been placed into a land where logic kind of doesn't really apply seeing as how you're in the realm of fiction and anything can happen at any given stage mm. so have, throwing her into that now granted the carcass you know it's like okay like it's something that I know it's something that I actually know is, and it's it's a I would assume that the carcass would be more of something relevant to her than say the mm. legends of no obviously the legends of uh, Greek and Roman and all sorts of mythologies are there forever but I think a lot of people would have, even now, there's probably more of a connection to Iron Man than there would be to, you know, like Zeus or Poseidon or all that kind of stuff. Hmm. But the thing about Medusa is the fact that Zoe can't see it to deny its existence. So when the pawing at the face is there as well, that's also making things much worse. See, I'm going to go with yes and no on that. And there's two reasons for that. Now, this may have just been a bit of a directing flub. Right. right? First of all, they see the statue at the start before it comes to life. I think that's probably the direct, yeah. So so, so there's that. So that kind of slightly undermines your your defense a small bit, right? Mm -hmm. The second is the doctor's looking at it the whole time. He doesn't look away. He's looking at the Medusa the entire fucking time. I, I think he, like... Someone I think confused. it was a directing flop. They, they, he uh, shouldn't have been looking that way. <laughs> I, th- I think someone got confused with a weeping angel. You know. <laughs> um, yeah. No. I see. That's the thing. Like, I probably put that down to a directing flop. Mm. Um, because yeah, the, it's highly stupid for the doctor to say, "Don't look at the thing." Mm. Um, while he like stares directly at us, you know. Yeah. But no, I I thought this was a nice showcase for Zoe. Mm. And not just in terms of her physical capabilities, but again, for her, like, there's more character growth for her here, I think. Yeah, I think you know, it's nice to see her have time with the Doctor, even though, like I said, he does make fun of her analytical mind a small bit. Um, it was nice to see her show that, like, we kind of got a hint of it last week, and you and I both had, you know, we had conflicting feelings about, like, they said that she was really strong, and they said that, like, she had really good stamina, but they didn't really show it. Mm-hmm. Whereas here we actually get to see it. She can yeah. fight. She's five foot nothing, mm-hmm. but she can fight and she can defend herself. Yeah. 
which is great to see because we haven't seen that in a while no Sarah Kingdom probably being the last person I think that yeah Sarah's the last person to probably handle herself yeah so I think that's great I think she got some great development we did get to see a little bit of like the whole tech thing at the end of it where she's like look just overload the system um, <laughs> you know. yeah I, I have comments about that you know technique <laughs> yeah but um, you know I think overall I think it's a really good opportunity for her and the doctor got to know her a bit which which is always good yeah also you know we kept going we got to see this we got to see that we got to see, I was happy we expect you to go to see we got to see her sparkly bum we got <laughs> <laughs> she did have a very sparkly Thank bum you. in her yeah. <laughs> of course they all not have as not bottoms. as nice as Ian's no. but very sparkly <laughs> so again of course they all have lovely bottoms <laughs> <laughs> so moving on to our prominent character section I suppose yeah so we only have the the man as you called him or yeah. the master of the land as I called him because Gulliver isn't really a character and neither is, is the Rapunzel or or they the carcass. Could, they are their fictional selves. And because they're tied to their fictional selves, like as you said, they only speak in dialogue from their, with the, probably with the exception of the carcass, mm. although we have no idea, there's not really much to discuss about them. Like seeing as how they can't fucking see anything, mm. they can't fight, they can't hinder, they can't do whatever. So, mm. Although like the railway children or whoever they were meant to be were kind of creepy. Oh Jesus, they're terrifying. Especially <laughs> when they're playing Ring Around a Rosie, yeah, and I'm like, okay, are they, are they going to play up what what that nursery rhyme is about? No, no, <laughs> nope. okay. Cool. So the man who was master of the land, but not quite master of the land. Mm. Well, see, this is the thing, right? So this this is where I said you called him the man, and I called him the master of the land. He is the master of the land. The man is the master of the land. That that's who they're referring to. Yeah, he is just being controlled by a higher entity. Yes. I think he's quite interesting as a character because hmm. you wonder actually how much of it is him and how much of it is the computer controlling him. Uh, you, that's the kind of the crux of my notes as well. So again, stop looking at my notes. Um, see, like obviously there are times where it's, you know, when he starts speaking that monotone, sinister voice is like, okay, it's the machine speaking through him. But there are other times where it's like, when you when he when he talks about himself, he seems very enthusiastic to be able to speak to humans again. Mm. But he, even with that same tone of voice, he then kind of goes into the more sinister, malicious side of things. And I'm like, there's something not quite gelling up between these two sides of his personality here. And like, I get that he wants to get out of there because he's you know like, like his life is coming to an end, or that's the feeling that he has. Like. He, like the doctor points out, like that he's just as much as a victim as anyone in this scenario, mm. because he was taken f- and made into a slave. But you get the sense that he enjoyed it for a while, which is the weird thing. I think he enjoyed it not in the sense of like kind of like domineering superiority, but in the sense of like you know, he now got to bring more of his fictional mm. creations to life, so that he could see them, and that it's kind of like you know the whole, um. You know, Stan Lee is a character in a lot of comics, you know, that allowed Stan to have a chance yeah. to, I suppose, interact with these people uh, that he created. So here I think it's the exact same. But uh, there are points in time when Maud's kind of going, like, I think what he's doing is very, very human. Mm. You know, in the sense of, like, I 
want like you know I've had in my time here I don't really want to be here anymore you seem to be more capable of doing the job why can't you take it over type thing yeah I, I sort of had um a flash at one point I think it's because we'd had the Minotaur and we'd had Medusa I kind of had a flash of can't remember which required book it is where Annabeth is tricked into taking over from Atlas and then Percy has to that's take over. The Titan's Curse, I think. The Titan's yeah. the turn uh, book. Yeah. Um I kind of had a bit of a flash of that of like that the master of the land is kind of like Atlas holding yeah. up the yeah. world as it were. Mm-hmm. And he needs someone to take over from him. Um the one thing that I didn't like, and this is kind of gonna lead us into our villains a small bit. While I found the whole dual personality of the Master of the Land quite interesting, mm-hmm. I don't think it was presented very well no. on screen. Because obviously it's the same actor doing a normal voice and then doing a really angry voice. <laughs> but there was no computer modulation on the angry voice. No. So sometimes it's hard to tell which one he's being. Because he's not quite angry enough and he's not quite not angry enough. And like, is this just the human being angry or is it the computer being mellow um i think had they modulated his voice a bit more when he was being the computer yeah i think it would have sold the whole thing a lot Mm. better yeah he's just a small bit more shouty when he's the computer but then again people get shouty when they get excited yeah and like you don't know later on then is he shouting as him or is he shouting as the computer like you you know he gets a little bit more monotone, but even then that's not consistent. I think had they, um, you know, modulated the computer voice a bit, then, you know, it would have helped sell that a bit more. No, yeah, I agree with you. Like, it's it's hard to tell where one begins and where the other ends. And that, I think that's the, it's one of the, the flaws in this thing is that, like, I think up until now, Doctor Who's been a very has had done a very good job of like kind of differentiating who its villains are, especially mm. if they seem to have been you know taken over in some way, shape, or form. Here, I think it's there's not enough of a distinction between the two. Yeah, and that moves us on to our villains. Yes, it does. So we have the computer, and then we have the robots that the computer uses to do its bidding. So, which would you like to do first? I suppose we'll get the robots over and all the way with seeing as how they're not really hugely present, I suppose. They're just kind of menial servants. Now, there's two distinct types. There's the robotic soldier ones, and then there is the rock'em sock'em robot ones. Okay, so I don't understand yours. There's the toy soldiers that have the wind-up key, and then there's the white ones. Yeah. Which one? Which one's which in your in your brain? So, so the 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 white robots. So I I refer to them as the soldiers in the I think or the soldiers or the guards, and then for everything else, yeah, this was. So the ones that kill the master computer at the end are the same yeah. ones at the very start. They're the white yes. robots. They're the white blocky yeah. rock'em sock'em robot looking things. Everything else though is the toy soldiers with yeah. the with the the camera lights in their heads. Yeah, I wasn't a big fan of the white ones to be honest. Um, in the again in the DVD, they talk about how like that costume was reused mm. from you know it was just in the BBC costume department. It looks so shit. Like I know we don't really like to judge, you know, impact of the costumes because like it was old who and the budget wasn't great and we mm. know that. 
but they look like they're made out of cardboard. They look like they're made out of cardboard and the thing that comes out of the back of a tumble dryer. The, the like air hose thing that oh, right. sends the hot air out of the tumble dryer. Yeah, I was only mean, was it the lint? <laughs> yeah. No. No, yeah, yeah, yeah I know what you mean. I, I don't think, like we've had interesting robots in the past. Hmm. And like if we're to compare these to the quarks from last week, the quarks are much more imaginative. Yeah. And even though they're still a block with a mace on its head. Yeah. I think they're more effective. They, I, I imagine like when they're coming with the concept of the quarks. Do you remember we talked about in the adventure in Space and Time? Uh, mm. When it was like, you know, the guy like just like putting random pieces of shit together to make up the TARDIS console room. Just someone just kind of went, ah, fuck it. Poof. And just like mashed the two things together. Um, I... I don't mind the design of the white robots. Like, it's it's clear, like, that, you know, okay, you can tell what they're exactly made out of. But I think the soldier ones are better because the soldier ones gave me a TNG vibe. They remind me of, uh, was it Hide and Q? The, mm. the werewolf Napoleonic soldier type things. Uh, and I think the I think the toy soldiers are because they move like toy soldiers. Yeah, and the sound... The sound they make is actually the sound is the the really kind of terrifying thing about these robots is that you can hear them coming, but in a very kind of oh shit they're coming kind of mentality. Yeah, because they've got very toy soldier like movements, and mm. Razor Hines's brother or cousin or something mm-hmm. um, was actually one of them. All right, and he said that like the legs didn't bend, so they had to be lowered into it, and their legs were stuck straight the whole time, so they had to walk like that. And I don't know why. I don't know if it's because I'd seen the movie Toys a few too many times as a child. <laughs> or, or what. But I found them way more intimidating. Yeah. Than the white ones. Toys is a very strange movie. Toys it, is a brilliant movie. No, no, no. No, it's good. But it's weird. Oh, no. It's, it's fucking bizarre. There's a girl who sleeps in a duck. Like, it's weird. Yeah. But <laughs> like, <laughs> if you haven't watched it, it's fantastic. Yeah, it's like was like uh, was you've got Michael Gambon is like the main villain and like LL Cool J is his son who teams up with Rob Williams and his like weird sister. Yeah, and you got John Cusack as well, who's just yeah. like Oh, uh, I love John Cusack. Oh, she's so bonkers. It's such a brilliant film. Yeah, Alice is obs- my daughter's obsessed with the Toy Story franchise at the moment. So like every time I just hear mm. John Cusack going, yeah, you know, talk about critters and Woody and all that kind of stuff, it's just funny. Um, but yeah. <laughs> The robots in this one, like the toy soldiers, yes, I definitely agree with you. I'm probably a bit more forgiving of the the big white ones because I just think you know they kind of, to me they, they don't look completely naff like some of the other things we've we've seen, but they do kind of take you out of things a small bit. Yeah, I I don't know what it was about them. It just didn't. didn't I I I, I I think it was like the clear fact that you know that these are. One thing I suppose, again, that we kind of, we talk about that is the production values of the show never really take us out of the story or they haven't Mm. until such like, you know, so glaringly. Here, I think this is the first time it's like, you know, go, oh yeah, these are guys in fucking suits. You know, these are guys in big black. I think it's also because these costumes weren't made for Doctor Who. Yeah, that might be it. Like, they're repurposed from an older program. There's not enough bubble wrap. (laughs) We haven't gotten there yet. <laughs> and we'll have amazing discussions about the bubble wrap when we get to it. Yes. So, governing the robots and governing the master of the land himself, we have the master computer. So, 
every time I like every time when I was watching this, right, the only thing that kept coming into my head was Futurama. I am a gigantic brain. <laughs> where like, where it's like, you know, like the fucking huge brains come to take over the earth and like they use books of fiction and it's like that's how it is. You know, Fry traps it in a book of was it was it <laughs> plot holes and spelling errors. <laughs> I'm the greatest. Now I'm going to leave for no raisins. Um, he well, but that was still more intimidating, I think, than the master computer, because oh, yeah. I, again, it was like I I got a sort of a weird. There's one sense of iRobot came into this, and it's because of the machine requires a human brain to do its thinking, or to power it, and it was sort of like an iRobot when. Um, Will Smith's character is like kind of going, oh, can a robot conduct a symphony? Can a robot uh, make a like you know paint a beautiful masterpiece? That type of thing. So without a hu- kind of the argument to make you know, without human in- input, can a machine fully understand the human capability type thing? And that that's what like I I I think was trying to go on here. But again, it's very weird. Like the plot is like the <laughs> yeah. The motive is very strange. My issue with it, right? Yeah, like my issue with it was what's its purpose? Who the fuck knows? What did it do before the master, like the the man, came along? Who the fuck knows? I would have rathered it was something a bit more like the animus that was connected to the man by tendrils. It's a living entity in itself. Mm -hmm. It's a computer. Yeah. Why is it a computer? What? Who built it? Why is it there? What does it do when there's no humans around? Like, I, I don't get it. <laughs> and maybe it's because, clearly, Peter and his friend Derek Sherman were high as balls when they wrote it. Yeah. Because I, like, I was going to get into my overall, like, but Jesus Christ, whoever created the story is clearly off their fucking tits on something. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so for me, the computer was a letdown. Um, I would have rather it either be a entity like the Great Intelligence mm-hmm. that we don't see anything, or it be something more like the Animus. It being a computer makes no sense. Or even something like the Celestial Toymaker, like you know, with their own little fucking domain, mm. like yeah. s- something to kind of give it like a bit of purpose, you know. But mm. uh, but again, like you know, was it the plot? You know, its motive was like to take over the Earth and remove all human life from it. But why? Like, human life is, like, you know, vast, you know, like, with its fictional creativity. Like, why the hell get rid of all of it? Why not siphon all its... I, I don't know, like... Why not get a library card, you fucker? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was like, you know, like, was, if you ask me, that computer deserved to fucking die. <laughs> Invent the internet. <laughs> and then just, you've got fanfiction.net and AO3 to your heart's content. Oh, God. <laughs> so that was an interesting character discussion yeah (laughs) very interesting multiple tangents as we are known to do yeah Uh, seriously at this rate like We've got potentially a MASH podcast, 
Next we pod. wouldn't do a Star Trek podcast because no. that's what the that's what the Mission Log guys are doing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just general random shite podcast Stargate we've mentioned before I can, I can just imagine X-Files like, we've mentioned before I can just imagine Norm kind of going stay out of the Alpha Quadrant that's our territory <laughs> uh, oh, so long as we yeah. never touch Babylon 5 he'd be grand yeah um, <laughs> anyway on to our overall yes Right, so, okay, fair enough, I'll take the, that's, it was, it was the, the nod, yes, the nod that no one could see is the cue for me to take the lead on this one, fair enough. Um, I'll explain why when I get to my cool. side. Right, now, I want to get your thoughts on this, right? One thing stood out to me the whole time watching this. Mm. It's the wrong TARDIS crew for this story. Explain. I think that this story would have been much better with the original TARDIS crew. Oh, oh, that would have been brilliant. I think it works with this TARDIS crew. Yeah. But now that you've mentioned it, yeah. I think it would have been better with that one. <laughs> I think it works with this TARDIS crew. You know, I, I think I think it works quite well. But I think it would have been better, yeah. Yeah, because again, you can imagine, right? Same, same kind of setup. The Doctor is in the machine, but Barbara is the one telling him what to say. Barbara is the one kind of with these amazing stories and all this type of stuff. And the master computer can kind of go, well, she's clearly the better choice. And they're in the struggle to replace one of the two. That's where the resolution to blow up the computer comes from because Ian dressed as Sir Lancelot or with Sir Lancelot, his ancestor, they just somehow abseil in, I don't know, on fucking Blackbeard's ship's rope. See, I'm already writing a better story. (laughs) This is actually quite interesting, right? So, See, someone now needs to write this. Either you do or someone else has to. Because you sort of have the the man, the, the master of the land, sort of targeting the doctor. Yeah. But then realising through the tests that Barbara is the better choice. Yeah. And like you can sort of have the doctor in his sort of like, oh, I'm brilliant way being like, oh, you wanted to get me. And you have the master going, no, we want her. But because again, like this second doctor, from my recollections, has never shown a sort of a love of literature or love of anything like as predominantly as we saw with any time in the first doctor's uh, run. Now, granted, that was mostly Barbara. Yeah. yeah, but she and the doctor sort of had a shared love of history. Yeah. Um, and you know, obviously, mythology plays into that. Um, in some respects, but yeah, I don't think we've seen that with Patrick's doctor. No, so I, I think he that knows that... a lot, but that doesn't mean he has a great imagination. No, and plus, as well, if you wanted to do the whole thing with the carcass, we talked before about how um, Caroline Ford was told that Susan would have like a kind of like a you know a combat, like martial arts kind of moment or two in, in mm. during her run. The same thing could have been done here with Susan. Yeah. So I, I think that this story probably would work better with the very first TARDIS crew. Mm. Um, now, the shorter runtime is very, very noticeable. And yes. Also, I wasn't a huge fan of the Street Fighter slash Mortal Kombat button bashing resolution to just, you know, like fucking press everything and hope to God you win. Uh, which is why my wife keeps kicking my ass in arcade versions of uh, <laughs> Street Fighter. That being said, though, I actually enjoyed watching the story. Mm. 
So I'm going to give this a 3 out of 5. Okay. So I'm going to tell you, there's a reason I asked you to go first. (laughs) Right. I don't know if you looked at the end of my notes to see who's doing the outro. I didn't. I don't have a score written down. (laughs) (laughs) I literally have no score until discussion. (laughs) I was so fucking confused when I finished watching. I messaged you. I was like, what the fuck did I just watch? (laughs) I was sat in my living room going, what the fuck was that? I have no idea. I had no idea what to give it. Did I enjoy it? Yeah, I guess I did. Um, it's like taking the edge of destruction, which mm. I love. Mm-hmm. Elements of the chase, which I'll come back around to in a second. Yeah. The celestial toy maker. I gave both of those stories the same score. And the TNG episode where no one has gone before, which I also love because you met meet Picard's mom. Yeah. And she's adorable. And Worf's little warthog dog. Less adorable. Yeah. More so the the bit with Picard and his mother in the hallway <laughs> having tea, which is lovely. I really loved episode one. I liked our main characters overall. The land of fiction, though. <laughs> like, what the fuck was that? <laughs> because it makes no sense. And it's why it reminds me of The Chase. Because in The Chase, we had episode... Four. Four. Where they were essentially in a fun house or like a For like horror a bit, house or yeah. whatever. And the doctor thought they were inside the human psyche. Like yeah. That should have been the land of fiction. Hmm. Because yeah. that's what that was. Yeah. <laughs> Look behind you, Mr. Dracula. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the whole idea of that, I think the reason why it bothers me is because of the computer. If only it wasn't a computer. Like I said, had it been the Celestial Toymaker, the Celestial Toymaker was banished by the Doctor before. It explains why he captured the TARDIS and brought it in. If it was the Celestial Toymaker taking the game from that to the next level, I think that would have been great. But there was just... Like, I enjoyed watching it. But I didn't know what the fuck I was watching or why. <laughs> I literally sat there going, okay, he's Gulliver. Right, I figured that out quite early, like I said, because I read the subtitles and it said Laputian, and I was like, okay, cool. Um, like, he's Gulliver. It's like, you when is a door not a door when it's a jar? And you have the two boys laughing their ass off at Zoe trapped in a jar jar. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, it's sort of... I-, I think my issue with it was, with it being the computer hmm. and not some malevolent entity of its own yeah like the celestial toy maker or like the animus the actual land of fiction it's a bit too childish mm. even for doctor who do you know so like i don't know like literally going down to i'm trying to go down through all of my notes again and come up with a score i liked our trio i thought they were very good i thought hamish was very good as replacement jamie I liked the first episode. I liked bits of the story as a whole. The thing that kills it for me is the computer-based aspect of it and the fact that the land of fiction... It, it makes no sense. Yeah. Like, oh, they suddenly have this thing that will take them out of space and time into the land of fiction. Like, what the fuck is that like? Um, 
I think the biggest issue with that though is that other than the master telling the doctor oh we want to like absorb all of humanity into whatever like that sounds silly it doesn't really feel like there's any real impact Mm. of what's happening yeah and it also did you find this it ended just yeah like last week also ended with just like there's no breather it's just end well well, last week it was like kind of like oh my god like let's escape as the thing um as the lava starts to come down with us whereas this one just literally really just ends yeah so i really struggled finding a score so after going through everything i think the character development Mm. i think the acting i think the basic concept pulls lots of things that i like Mm -hmm. so i'm gonna go with a three okay however losing two points is because the land of fiction is just weird yeah as a, as, a con- as a concept for a science fiction story. And two, the computer being the base of it is just fucking shit. Yeah. Um, it should have been an entity of some sort that lives in this land and, you know, created the land of fiction. I agree. As a sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, it's a bit of a long way to say that I didn't know what to give it. And so I wanted you to go first to see okay. if I agreed with you. Cool. And I did. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> And that brings us to the end. Yes, it does. We've come to the end of this weird, wacky adventure. So next week, we're going to be discussing the invasion. Well, part of the invasion. Paddy, I'll hand it to you just to explain what we're doing next week. Cool. So the invasion is an eight-part story. Now, our long-term listeners will know how much I, you know, relished doing eight parts for the second part, uh, eight episodes for the second part of Dalek's Master Plan. So what we've done is we're deciding to break it up into two. There's, there is actually two distinct cutoff parts. So next week we'll be having part one. And like previously Dalek's Master Plan, we will give some of the uh, trivia, our baseline for the compa- or for the characters, how we think they're doing, but we will not be giving it an overall score. That will be coming for week two. So, we'll see you next week for the invasion. Bye. Bye.